Welcome to episode 115 of the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. I am Dave Deacon, and it's been a minute since we all got together, but it turns out that October and the first half of November are pretty busy for the doctors. Well, most of them. We were able to get together and record on November 22nd, but Dr. Jason Warren was not able to be with us since he was harvesting plots up in the Oklahoma Panhandle. But we were able to get a great stand-in to keep his seat nice and warm for him. We'll hear from Oklahoma State University's Randy Raper here in a few minutes. There's a lot of interesting information in this episode, and you will be able to find out all of that great information on our website, reddirtagronomy.com. Before we dive in, take a second and hit the subscribe button on your streaming service so you'll always know when the latest Red Dirt Agronomy podcast drops. As always, we start with a quick trip around the table for an introduction to the dream team of dirt and all things that grow from it. Let's start with Oklahoma State University Extension Cropping System Specialist. My music teacher when I was in elementary said, you're probably not inclined for music. (laughs) (laughs) Have have you thought about the bass drum? (laughs) No, she didn't even say that. Have you you thought about football? (laughs) Dr. Josh Lofton. Across from him, we find Oklahoma State University's Extension Precision Nutrient Management Specialist. You you went through the you went through the channels properly. I did not. That means I no longer have his cell phone number. Doctor Brian Arnell, and the doctors enjoy hearing from you and answering your questions. So if you have a question about soil or crop production, jump over to reddirtagronomy.com and leave one there, or just send us an email directly. Podcast at reddirtagronomy.com. And we will discuss your question on the next podcast. Without further ado, let's get a crop update from one of these guys that are fighting over it right now. You are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. No, Brian, I always <laughs> do the updates. <laughs> All right. It's his. I, I, so, my, my stuff is is either dead or out of the ground. It's, it's wheat <laughs> update time. <laughs> What's, well, and, and, and it's not because of your science skills. It's because it's what you actually work No, it's with. his agronomic skills. That, that's what it is. <laughs> Many of my stuff died a long time ago. <laughs> so so I, I, I guess, Brian, we'll yep. start with you. Uh, you've been out in the field. You've been sciencing. Yep. You've been doing uh, <laughs> uh, 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 other That's questionable. Stuff. Yeah. <laughs> Hit or miss. Yeah. Um, what, what, what are you doing? What are you seeing? Uh, ben through most corners of the state in the last couple weeks uh still folks trying to get a little bit of wheat in um most of the the body of the state wheat's in wheat's up all all sorts of stages um there's some pockets of some really good wheat actually might even have some uh, grazable wheat if we keep these kind of warm trends every now and then a lot of the 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 south west specifically has some really good wheat They're battling a lot of weeds because oh, yeah. uh, they dusted in and um they stayed wet they, when they finally got the rains it stayed wet a lot of uh weed emergence a lot of bromes a lot of grassy weeds and so they're just now getting over the top of them but probably got a pretty good blend of wheat and and grassy weeds north central central uh kind of pot marked on how you see the wheat there's a lot of um a patchy wheat where they got it in the ground part of it got up uh, and set there and actually went backwards a little bit got weeds and wheat up and then just recently in the last couple of weeks you see more emergence so you have some bigger wheat with weeds in it and some some newly emerged wheat that's coming up 
our panhandle is still uh, i haven't been out there jason's out there right now uh based upon moisture the best case scenario that some of it got some snow might have some areas had enough to get some germ but just two weeks ago i was out there and the majority of the panhandle was still too dry to get up any of the dry land in fact two weeks ago talked to producer out there said this was the first time in his 45 years of farming that on november 5th he did not have a single acre of dry land wheat up out of out of his four thousand acres of wheat yeah irrigated is up looking pretty good so they're running it uh pretty hard you'll see the cattle put out on it eastern oklahoma i was out there about two or three weeks ago Good moisture, a lot of drills were running there, getting the beans out, and so a whole lot of wheat went in the ground that northeast corridor, Ottawa County, Nawada, Jay, uh, well, north of Jay, in that region through the last of October, early November, good moisture up there. Uh, planting, some of it went in, got heavy rain, so I think we're going to have some spotty emergence on that. Uh, overall, everything that's in the ground is is up and looking good for the most part. We're way behind. We would expect to have had it up middle of October, not middle, late November. Uh, producers were starting to push seeding rates, pushing from their normal 60, 70 pounds. I've been hearing, you know, right now we're planting today. So this is uh, right before Thanksgiving. We're recording this. We'll be putting seed in the ground. We'll be running just short of uh, 110 pounds of seed per acre wow. uh, to compensate for that late late growth. But uh, I know seed man Jeff Wright with Foundation Seed, they're still running, uh, trying to get their stuff in. I had a problem. All my, all my research is no-till. All my drills are small. Yeah. And so I couldn't physically put a drill in the ground until October 28th. Just wow. could not get the little five and ten foot no till drills on the ground, so that's why we're still behind. We got a lot of wheat done quickly, uh, and we're fertilizing nutrient wise. Unless it was in early down the southwest, unless it's irrigated, the nutrient demand has been extremely low. We're not going to have a lot of fall growth. Everybody I'm talking to, most part, is holding back on their fertilization and to get into the springtime, and I don't think that's a bad idea. And and, and to that end, you've actually. I, I, I'm, I'm always impressed by the research that you've done into that about... Well, thank you. Well, you know, I I remember whenever you were like, I don't know if this is going to work or not, yeah. but we're yeah. going to explore it. And it, you've actually shown some, some benefits to holding off on, on you know, doing some of those yeah. applications. So, so it relates to this, but the benefits, I believe, so we did a lot of work showing, we've got eight or nine years, and we're still continuing. Like, so ever since 20... 15, we have 2014, we have delayed nitrogen work, and we're continuing on through now. But always, it didn't need for grain only. We we never saw benefit of pre-plant fertilization, even split application, that you could delay all of your nitrogen to that, that late January, February, even March into April time frame and, and do well. Really high yielding, you give a shot in the early spring at green up and then give most of it around jointing. A lot of that value, I believe, was twofold. One, if it's early and up early, we have tiller management because we have wheats that tiller well because they're grazing wheats over tiller to the point where it's not needed in a grain-only system. And so we're really doing tiller management by not putting up so many tillers that won't make it to harvest. And also man- managing crop height, we bring with that delayed nitrogen, we bring the crop height down a little bit. We get more standability. Uh, with late application, we get better protein. 
And also, if things turn out wet in the fall, which I'd love to have a wet fall or spring. We haven't had that in a while. If they turn out wet, the nitrogen is not there to be lost. And so, especially going into a year like here, I'd put it this way. Look at nitrogen management, nitrogen need, nitrogen demand. We've been dry. Well, we were dry for three quarters of a year, basically. We have upward movement. We've talked about this in podcasts before. We have upward movement of sulfur, nitrogen, and I'm still getting soil test levels that are just really high, Uh, especially if you go to 6 to 12 inches where I'm finding what I'd normally find 10 or 15 pounds. I'm finding 20 to 60 pounds. So we have all that nitrate up. We have a very small crop, and if you can look down a wheat field and you row the wheat but you still have more soil than wheat, you've only used 5 or 10 pounds in the crop itself. It's not until you get that wheat rowed over that you start getting the amount of uptake above 30 or 40 pounds where there's any stress anyways. So at this point in time, sit and wait. Wait for a good application. Wait for a good application window where you have rain coming in a week or so. Um fertilizer price isn't going to be going down anytime soon we're going to be holding it at our high prices likely and so it's all about applying the fertility nitrogen specifically when it's a good window for the nitrogen because your crop window is massively huge i mean from now through march end of march early april that's your fertilization window so why not focus on your fertilizer window and get the best efficiency out of that based upon application. So with all of that, is is that is that grain only or is that dual purpose as well? Uh, so if if you're dual purpose, which um, you know, a lot of our dual purpose <laughs> uh, that's our special guest yeah. uh, ringtone. We'll we'll reveal here in a moment. If so, if you know who that ringtone is, <laughs> go ahead and submit your guesses. So, if uh, for the dual purpose folks, if you're still trying to get the graze on it, go ahead and get have most of Mari do. They they put it out. The dual purpose folks fertilized back in August, right, right, and <laughs> September. So they've got anywhere between forty and eighty units out already. Uh, do see a lot of value if you don't have it out on the dual purpose of a shot coming in February, March and getting an extra boost out of that, that nitrogen fertilizer and getting a really good forage production. Excellent. Okay. Josh, you good? Oh. No update? Absolutely. I, no, no, no questions? I, uh, I wouldn't plant summer crops right now. <laughs> I have a canola question. Yes, sir. I sent you an email the other day. Uh-huh. What's the chatter? Can you speak upon that email that I sent you? What's the what's the goings on there? I, I don't know. And, and you know, talk about you know, there's a lot of talk about new processing and and plants in and around the Southern Great Plains and oil seed processing. Yeah, sorry, oil seed processing. There's there's a lot of kicked up interest in various oil seeds, specifically canola, but there there's other ones for various reasons. So. There may there might be a lot more information coming down on on what we can do to make canola a, a well I mean canola is still a viable option right now mm-hmm. it's um you know we had two sides of the spectrum the input costs were too high or the output costs weren't enough mm-hmm. you know the the ability to sell so um you know there's there's still a lot of questions to be held on on if this has got legs it's 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 a good crop, um, but like this year, our our window was completely closed by the fact that it didn't rain mm-hmm. in our typical planting window, and and 
if any canola acres got in, it's very small. Some folks that even have historically planted canola just weren't able to get it in just due to the fact that the, the moisture just wasn't there. So um, I, I think there's some movings on over the next probably six to nine months. We might hear a lot more about canola, but um, we'll we'll see. Um, you know, I'm I'm uh, cautiously optimistic. What other crops would be going into those oilseed processors? Uh, you know, I think the the two big ones would probably be uh, the canola and camelina. And camelina. I, I've been I hearing a lot of chatter on camelina lately. Camelina is the the other one that we're hearing a lot. Um, that that's where I think I would say probably ninety nine percent of the the uh, it would go. It, it, with the exception is if we see up a big cottonseed oil processing again. Camelina is the one they use for like aircraft fuel, right? Like- it, see, camelina can be used for a lot of things. Yeah, the oil seed and the pulp, the pr- after processing can be used as well. So it, it's got some it's got some legs, but it's it's a uh, Ten years behind canola mm-hmm. and variety selection management, you know that sort of thing. So it's it's got the same hurdles canola came with um, of making a variety that will will be successful in this environment that is not typically favorable to um, something that can't you know get kicked in the teeth and you know keep on it, going. It's more tropical, right? It, it's more. I don't know the answer not to quite that. Tropical, but it's uh, not a northern. When I do believe when we were down in Louisiana, Mississippi State was was pushing really hard on some camelina work, um, and so uh, that's kind of where I would see its its primary fit because I think they were pushing pretty hard. I, on I it. saw some, and I can't remember where it's out of. There's a couple of universities doing camelina work right now. But I was thinking is that southeast yeah. group, Louisiana, yeah. Mississippi State, maybe Arkansas even. I was thinking it was around there because. Uh, Camelina was our foreign exchange Georgia student in, uh, oh God, I think, our sophomore go. year in high school, Camelina. No, yeah. that's not right, Dave. No, no, I'm thinking it was Karen okay, uh, was her name. I'm our sorry. Our guest, please, guest. Oh. Dave. <laughs> he hasn't got to do Aunt Hydras in a while, so he's really needing it, it, to it, drop And I it really in. hope that it doesn't come back. So Josh's response right there was the exact same one that my daughters give me now. It's like, <laughs> no, Dad, no, Dad, no. That's, that's not right. You're that you never knew anybody named Aunt Hydras. No, no, she didn't live down the street. So our from our guest here. Today. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, yo, you. So any guesses on 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 whose ringtone that was? Anybody? Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I, I I guess it's not fair. You guys could see him, but yes. Okay, go ahead and enter. Josh, introduce him. You called him. I I did call him, but I found out that Brian has his cell phone number, so I think Brian should introduce him because you, you I'm not. The, you went through the channels properly. I'm yeah, not I favorable not. enough to get the cell phone. I, so I just uh, have his email address. Yeah. That's all I have. And, and well, I, that's I, how I got his phone numbers <laughs> off an email. So. We'll fix all that after this. <laughs> He's changing his number. That, that but, means I no longer have his cell phone number. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't mean in, any either of us are getting anything more. But uh, yeah, I, our guest uh, here on this you know holiday edition mm-hmm. of uh, you know Red Dirt Podcast is Dr. Randy Raper, um, really heading special projects uh, now, and and he's got a much more distinct title than that. But uh, you know, has served as uh, as faculty uh, down in the South, and then uh, came to us as. Uh, uh, working at the research stations, and then you've moved into this new role, and and kind of the the man that spearheads the the new ag hall, if you will. 
Yes. I'll let you go from there. Yes. So what's your official title now? What what do we call you? Uh, just call me for supper. That's about all it amounts to. One of those dad jokes, yeah. right? Um, well, I got two titles, and I've always had multiple titles. When I first came here back in 2012, uh, Clarence Watson was the guy that hired me. And after I'd been here about two weeks, Clarence came in one day and said, uh, you know, Dr. Raper, wanted to let you know that uh, you moved from Arkansas over here, and after you've been here a couple of weeks, I'm going to move to Arkansas. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that was so that was my first was experience. Exchange you know, student, yeah. And then I got to work with this guy by the name of Jonathan Edelson, mm-hmm. which uh, turned out to be a great experience. But So I moved in over here to basically manage the experiment stations around the state. That was what they hired me for, and they pointed out to me in 2012 we did not hire you to do research. We hired you to do, you know, management. You know, leave it to the faculty to do research. Make sure you don't do that. So that worked out really well, I think, especially for the faculty. Uh, so started doing a couple of things right after uh, Clarence left. I became assistant director of the experiment station. And then I uh, had the opportunity, actually before I got here, we had a tornado that actually came through down at Tipton. And that same tornado continued on up to uh, Fort Cobb, took out an irrigation system at Fort Cobb and totally uh, wiped uh, Tipton off the map. Mm. So we got to start over at Tipton. So that was my first experience building something, going back and basically talking with faculty and what do you guys need, what do we need at this location, how do you want it built back. And so got that opportunity to to go back and work with uh, some entities here on campus and um, have to say I'm still working with those same entities because <laughs> what they kind of figured out is that, hey, you're an engineer. You understand some of the stuff that they talk about. Why don't you just keep doing this? And so as I kept doing it, you know, then we went from Tipton. We went to Lahoma. We rebuilt the uh, uh, the Ray Sidwell uh, facility there, the headquarters area. And then we moved over to Stillwater, and we did the equine center and uh, the robotic milking parlor, the foundation seed facility that we moved out from the agronomy station here teaching greenhouses so i've kind of became basically the person that uh, if you want to build a new building uh, you know come talk to me we'll work with the architects we'll get the project put together we'll find funding for it and that's really culminated with our new frontiers ag hall that we're working on right now so pretty much every day I look out my window and I get to see how much more concrete they poured. <laughs> so. I, I came across you long before you, you were administrator. Mm-hmm. And so from Arkansas, even before that with Auburn. Give, can you give a, just a little bit about what you did as a, a academic before you came sure. into the Oklahoma State system? Well, I totally failed in that endeavor <laughs> because actually one of the projects that I was involved in was try to hire somebody who knew something about agronomics at Auburn. And, uh, man, we were, we were searching far and wide, and uh, it was getting pretty desperate. And we came across this guy from Oklahoma um, yeah. that came down for an interview. And uh-uh. um, I never interviewed. Oh, you did too? You came down. Yeah, I came down. Because okay. I talked to you. That's right. Yeah. God forgets. He interviews uh-huh. so many places. He doesn't <laughs> yeah. Where all these spe- uh, so, yeah, I talked yeah. to you and talked yeah. to you about the benefits that yeah. I thought, you know, yeah. coming down and mm-hmm. seeing a different part of the world, you know. Yeah. Anyway, I failed at that. So, um, I worked uh, at the National Soil Dynamics Laboratory. Uh, I actually educated. I'm a native Alabamian, went across the state line to Mississippi State, got an undergrad degree. 
but got the opportunity during that to work for John Deere for a while. They had a co-op program, and they were interested in somebody that was willing to go to the Midwest, to the to the North, as I saw it back then, and work. And so I worked in Ottumwa, Iowa, for about 18 months, uh, working on uh, hay balers and windrowers and that kind of stuff. And so kind of got acclimated to the to the winters up there, and so did graduate school up there as well. Went did my master's and PhD, and then moved back to Auburn. And while I was at Auburn, uh, I was hired as a computer modeler, if you can believe that. And after a couple of years of sitting in the office, I kind of decided I don't like this. And so I started actually going out into the field and uh, started working on conservation yeah. tillage. And and actually, before I ever came here, I think somebody called me and asked me. Well, actually, is after I left Auburn. I worked at the Soil Dynamics Lab for about 25 years, moved over to western Oklahoma, no, western uh, Arkansas, Arkansas, where I managed the Dale Bumper Small Farms Research Center. And it was while I was there that somebody called me. I think it was you, Dr. Mm-hmm. Arnall, and asked me to come over and maybe uh, speak at your no-till uh, mm-hmm. event that you had here. So that was my first opportunity, yep. something memorial about that event. I remember coming over to that event and speaking, and there was a guy in the front row that dozed off, <laughs> went to sleep while I was talking. <laughs> and uh, I didn't know that I'd wind up working in an office just almost right beside him but I, I learned that that's actually fairly yeah i know it i think most everybody knows uh it's it's fairly well known that that's what typically happens but for somebody speaking that first time <laughs> i wasn't exactly sure how to take that anyway I, that i'll was, tell you over the years as an extension specialist <laughs> with my bosses coming in and that one particular one just yeah, napping yeah the first couple times it was it was quite you know he decided whether I got paid or not. So there yes. was a lot of concern when the guy, well, when the guy signed your paychecks. Uh, one thing for future people that you invite, if he's there, you might want to warn him ahead of time. You know, hey, this guy's probably going to take a nap during your presentation. Don't think anything Don't think about anything it. About you know. Anyway, had the opportunity to, to come over here, and uh, and despite that, you guys asked me to come over and work yeah. here, so it's been it's been great though. Came here in 2012 and uh, been here ever since. Now get to look out my window and see this building going up, and hopefully in a couple of years we'll be all moving in. So that's kind of where we're headed. But but that's not all you have mm-hmm. done for the the world of agronomy and stuff like that. I mean your your son is well known even to growers in this part of the world because of, of the work he's done in cotton. And as a nice tag, he will be here for winter crop school. That's yes. Ooh, well on yep. December well 14th yeah. and 15th. Yeah. I actually talked with him this morning, and I asked him, I said, are you coming to stay for Christmas? He said, no, that'll be a short trip. So, uh, <laughs> kids are still we, in school. We tried. So, yeah. 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 That's all right, though. That's all right. Yeah, uh, one of the things i tell you, and one of the best memories that I have really, uh, so the time I spent in Auburn, we raised a lot of cotton mm-hmm. and a lot of research. And so one of the things that we got to experience, and I I did as a kid, uh, grew up on a cotton farm. Uh, When we go out and raise our cotton, uh, basically we'd pick it. I'd have my wife bring the kids to the field. And so I had these two little boys, Tyson, who was probably seven at that time, Jaron, his younger brother, who was five. And so you got to pack that cotton down, you know. And so we got to got to put them in the back of the the buggy and uh, basically jump up and down on it, you know, mash it down so that we could put more in there. So anyway, that and being at field days, 
I think, uh, really convinced him that that's really what he what he wanted to do. So, yeah, he's doing a great job of it. We're proud of it. Whenever you came to OSU, <laughs> and, and and you were you were helping with the uh, with with the with researchers, I guess. Mm-hmm. What were you doing? And 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 whenever you, whenever it changed over to actually, why don't you take more of a managerial side of it? Kind of talk about that transition. Well, part of it was early on was uh, really just trying to work with the researchers, make sure that they had full access to the research stations, make sure that the personnel at the stations had the leadership that they needed. Uh, we were going through, you know, if you remember back then, that was 2011, 2012, 2013, pretty, pretty desperate times. Oh, yeah. Uh, I remember one of the edicts, uh, I got the opportunity to do something, guys, that I'm not real proud of, and that was the last time I did it, and that was I had to lay some people off. And that was, uh, you know, one of the things that I really tried to do was when we hire someone, you make a, essentially, you make a lifetime commitment to that person. And we had some situations that developed uh, there that weren't weren't that pleasant. And after I did that, that's when I went to my bosses and said, look, you got to do something differently here. You know, we got to either have some additional funds to manage these resources with or we're going to have to wind up doing with, with less. And so we, we've actually, I think budgets have come back. They've actually done real well. Uh, Dr. Chris Richards, who's now doing that, uh, is doing a really good job about managing those resources. Uh, these guys here, you know, Josh and Brian, do a great job of working on the stations. That was one of the things I, I had learned when I first came here. Some of the researchers had actually moved off station. Uh, they found it easier to work on farmers' fields than it did on station. And so I really wanted to change that mentality. Uh, I did not want that to ever be an excuse. And so I, I made it clear to everybody that, uh, you know, to faculty, hey, you have an expectation. We want you there. We'll, we need you there because if, if you're not there, I don't need the station. You don't need the station. Right. Taxpayers of Oklahoma don't need to fund this. And so that actually worked, I think, really well. The researchers responded and came back uh, to the stations. And, uh, for example, Chickasha went through a period of time where there was no wheat research at all, mm-hmm. you know, going on at Chickasha. And so I think we fixed that, and now it's one of the mainstays. You know, we yep. have that. We have a really good field day there that these guys, you know, contribute to every year. Now, just just so everybody, you know, listening knows, kind of walk us through what a research station is. And there's what? 20 of them in Oklahoma? 18. 18. 18 okay. around 18 different locations. Okay. But, yeah, one thing you've got to realize, Oklahoma's a little different than most other places that I've ever been. Uh, some of the stations that I worked at in Alabama, Mississippi, Tennessee, you know, they're pretty elaborate facilities. You know, you might have half a dozen, 10, 15 faculty at that location. Um, here, Due to budgets and due to the, I think, really the natural lay of the land here, you know, the climate that you got, the variation, it's important for these guys, uh, you know, for Dr. Arnall, if he's going to be talking about, about, if he's going to be talking to a producer in eastern Oklahoma, he's got to do research in eastern Oklahoma. He can't take what's done at Altus and apply it there. Now, the panhandle, man, you got such a different, you know, growth uh, situation out there than you do in southeastern Oklahoma. So here it's really a requirement uh, to have lots of different places uh, that basically you have as an opportunity for these researchers to operate on. Because of that, 
we spend about, oh, it's probably one and a half million a year operating these stations. Uh, the way we operate here is that most of the stations are minimally funded so that we would have probably between, in some cases, we've got one, lo one person at that station. Most of the time, due to safety issues, we've got at least two or three at the station. And then maybe a, f maybe a couple of those, particularly here near Stillwater, we might have a few additional personnel. Most of them are mentally fun uh, minimally funded. Kind of the, the expectation I had for our people uh, at the stations was that there's, you, you'll, you can do pretty much anything that the researchers want you to do with two exceptions. One, you don't collect data. Uh, basically, I always had the expectation that as, as I've written a few publications and as I've tried to understand, you know, at the end of the season when you're sitting down writing that publication up and you can't figure out, you know, I've got this result and I really don't know why this is response, why it's responding this way. Well, I think the way to correct that is that you actually have to be there when that when that's when you're collecting that data you've got to ha know that that data has an integrity associated with it and so you really can't expect a station personnel to collect that data or a i would say not only the faculty the faculty doesn't have to be there but they got to have a graduate student or a technician there when that data is collected also when treatments are applied you know those are the two things that i would i would say from a faculty perspective you need to be on site when those things are happening other than that, preparing the land, doing custom uh, or, or doing typical tillage operations, things like that that are not treatment related, I think our guys in the field do a great job of that. And that's kind of the way we've set this system up all around the state. I have to say it's, it's, it's not easy either, you know, because <laughs> there's, a, there's a lot of faculty that have a lot of different expectations mm -hmm. and a lot, of, a lot of faculty with a lot of end goals that are different than each other. And so it's not like a... You know, a lot of folks think, well, you know, I farm this this uh, station's a thousand acres. I farm a thousand acres, but you know, when we got Bermuda grass plots next to soybean plots, next to cotton fields, next, next to, to a pecan orchards, mm -hmm. next to right, yeah. Brian spraying dicambon grapes and and no, hops and roses it. and uh, <laughs> but the horticulture and you know, there's there's a lot of moving parts with a lot of people with you're different exactly, goals. You're exactly right. And I, I tell you, one of the most difficult conversations I had was probably with a faculty member after I had been here probably a year or so. And he came to me and was telling me that, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm having difficulty working at the station. And, uh, I, and I said, well, what are your expectations? And he said, well, basically what I'd like to do is when I show up, I'd like for them to stop everything they're doing and come do what I ask them to do. And I, well, I'm sorry, sir, but, you know, that's probably not going to happen because, you know, they have, they have other things that they're working. You're not the only researcher that works at that station. They have other duties, you know, that uh, in the particular instance that had occurred that he was upset about is they had received a load of fertilizer that they were in the process of putting out before rain later that day. Unfortunately, there's a few timely things like that that, you know, weather-related that uh, I would have to say he was probably in the wrong place at the wrong time. But, yeah, you're exactly right. Faculty have different expectations. They came from different universities. They came from uh, different locations. 
And uh, also, you've got a lot of different disciplines, mm-hmm. you know, that we work with, too. I was too. about to say, you, sh- you should talk about uh, Cimarron Valley and the diversity. Oh, yeah. Isn't that your most diverse? I would say so. Yeah. Most every other place that we've got has got, uh, you know, has got some horticulture. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to have uh, at Bixby, Bixby, that was our main horticultural, you know, uh, station where they did vegetable work. Uh, and then uh, now it's doing mostly turf grass. Mm-hmm. But uh, you're right, Cimarron Valley at Perkins is probably, and with the qualification of Stillwater or maybe Lahoma, mm-hmm. to me it's one of our most important locations. Mm-hmm. Uh, it actually does a little bit of everything. We've got some uh, cattle that we graze there. We've got, uh, of course, the agronomic crop area uh, is one that, uh, you know, it really is a, and we have irrigation potential there as well. That's something we don't have mm-hmm. at a lot of our stations. Uh, and we also have a pretty good pecan orchard there mm-hmm. as well. Uh, one of the neat things I learned about pecans when I came here is how valuable they were. We would routinely get upwards of $100,000 mm-hmm. in yields from pecans at Perkins. And those are dollars that I could use to help keep people employed. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that's that's pretty beneficial. Uh, and, and that's an investment, frankly, mm-hmm. that didn't turn around right away. I mean, that's, uh, that's 15 years ago somebody made yeah. the decision used, to do that used to have the peach orchard peach orchard yeah too. yeah we did yeah, yeah we did and, and that was that was not only a. I think most of the time that was the community came out and any of the peaches that were on the ground whether yeah. that was positive or negative yeah. then you know that was one of our difficult probably one of the most difficult decisions i had because one of the things about peaches is that to, and again that was the decision that was made probably 15 20 years ago was to plant the peaches there was an active research program going on here uh, in in peach development and then after about 10 years that ceased and so we were kind of left with a decision but in the meantime the community started responding to this these tremendous peach harvests that we would have and it became community events mm-hmm. but the problem with peaches is that you can't just grow them no. they take inputs yeah and they take labor you have to spray you have to be prepared to manage that um and without it being part of a research effort, mm-hmm. again, as we were trying to look at our future, what do we, how do we, how do we manage that? Uh, we kind of had to circle back that you know research stations are there to do mm-hmm. research, and our resources need to be spent uh, basically on research. Mm-hmm. You know what you guys do is the most important thing that we do. So we made the difficult decision, and and the other part of it too. We could have let the old orchard basically continue to kind of, you know, fall down on itself. But there's an expectation. If OSU does something, we need to do it right. You know, that we, if we're going to have it, it's got to be, it's got to be beyond reproach. Um, There's also the issue that occasionally when we do something like this, we have to make sure that we're not in competition with local producers. And so for a number of, number of reasons like that, we made the decision to terminate the peach orchard. So now we've got a great opportunity to do more agronomic mm-hmm. research or to do more other horticulture research. Matter of fact, I saw in one of the areas down there uh, recently, they've got some pretty interesting hops research that's ongoing in that same area. Just, it's right, just, right down from, from Brian's spray path. Just, <laughs> just 70 yards from my no-till crop rotation site, straight to the north. I mean, he's got it's, to get through some roses so, and some no, no, grapes to get there. No first. roses, just, just a vineyard. And so it's, this is one of the challenges. So It's just an encouragement for you to really embrace the organic nature. 
of, of what you need to do here. Right? <laughs> but that that's that's one of the fun things. So no, so I I have a couple blocks, no till, I have cotton in there, I have sorghum, I have soybean, I have wheat. And just across the road you get into a large vineyard and then a They've got it fenced, but it's basically a horticulture. Yes. Uh, they do cover crop, and, and then on the other side, of that's a hop. So, yeah, I'm trying to manage no-till crop rotation, and 30 yards away, I don't have a vineyard. So my my reliance upon the mesonet and the wind prediction yes. and those things yes. is heavy. We also make lots of trips out there right at sunrise or other times when we have favorable winds. But that's Sounds like we may need to move you next no, year. No, don't move me. I've, it, it takes me so long. So that's one of my challenges as a fertility specialist. Many other researchers don't pay much attention to fertility in that they just fertilize a lot, especially with yeah. like a breeder like Brett or mm-hmm. a weed scientist, Misha. Right. You want to – genetics, you want them expressed with no limitations on fertility. You want weeds expressed with no limitations. Right. So – for me to come into a research farm or a farmer's field either way and get a nutrient response in year one is often not not happening so i take over large blocks of ground and i'm well aware of that and uh so i will i i manage larger blocks on all the stations how many stations do you work on uh mccall oprec Oklahoma, tipton cobb altus Bixby, Perkins, LCB Research Farm. Might Nine. be easier to ask. How many don't you work on? Nine. Um, about half of them. I do like. go down. What's uh, I do go down to every now and then. I haven't been on there uh, southeast of here. Lane. 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 I've yeah. been on Lane. Don't yeah. have down there, and I don't have anything on the timbers. Hmm. I do have cross timbers, and I do have the range north range. So I, okay. I have stuff on Ansi. So, we'll I have don't to. have it on three. Four. That's about right, yeah. It, it just depends on how you group these around yeah. here. Yeah, yeah, I don't have anything on, on main agronomy, right. but I do have long terms for the fertility I'm mentioning yeah. now. So, no main agronomy. Uh, I do have e-fall from time to time. So, no, but... And that's the one thing working. It's always working, with, and they're great to work with working with the station managers on inputs because I run so much, right. and so you know I try to make sure. So at Petty John, so down at Chickasha, I need to draw down. I do trial, and I need to draw down from whatever last year. So we do a hay rotation, mm-hmm. whether it's a wheat hay or a sorghum sedan hay. That's one of the easiest ways for me to pull down residual treatments from previous years in my rotations is some sort of hay, and so. Like this year, we're going to do a heavy amount of wheat hay because we've got a good stand. Everything looks good. He'll do a light fertility over the top of my bulk ground, 40 or 60 pounds, to make sure we got good growth. He can get a really good hay crop off of it, which then he can turn back into either ansite or or station cells. Sure. And then, but if we go to say uh, OPREC. All that grain that I cut, that corn and stuff, will go back in the station. I just bring home. I may bring home three bushel, but cut. I think this last time I dumped the combine five times, so dumped 180 bushel off mine. Then the bulk ground as I rotate out. Mine is a challenge though because I'm trying to draw down. So instead of at Chickasha growing, you know, 
10 ton of forage every right. year. I'm right. growing three to four ton of right. forage. But the inputs are lower, just a little bit of herbicide, a little bit of fertility. Well, again, it's part of what you have to have, you know, to continue your research there. So, And that's really what our main initiative is, is trying to make sure that you have that platform mm-hmm. to do your research. Now we're taking a quick break so the doctors can set up their poster presentations on where they think their offices should be in the new Frontiers building. And while they do that, I want to remind you to hit the subscribe button where you get your podcast. And if you want to learn more about what the doctors are talking about, jump over to reddirtagronomy.com for all of that information and a place to submit questions for them. It's always fun to hear from you guys, and the doctors love hearing your questions. So jump on over to reddirtagronomy.com. So let's just dive back in. You are listening to the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. So Randy, one of your big projects now is the New Frontiers. Kind of walk us through, for the folks listening in Australia, what is New Frontiers? Okay. Well, it really is a project that started... Oh, it goes back about, well, to be honest, it goes back when Dr. Kuhn was hired. Yep. I mean, that was really, as we all come to came to understand it, he was hired back in 2013, 2014. That was one of the initiatives was to try and figure out how do we replace the structure we're in, Ag Hall. And, you know, you, th- you look at Ag Hall. Ag Hall was built in three phases, 58, 59, and in 63 three different phases um most of the agronomic research that these guys are involved with are in the oldest phase mm-hmm. which is the one laced with asbestos um <laughs> just a little bit yeah yep yeah. <laughs> right yeah. uh, we're, we're well familiar with as- asbestos abatement yes. techniques oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. Yeah. so they are um, <laughs> took a training anyway one of the problems with an old building like that is it's hard to do cutting edge you know new century research i mean you just uh we spend all our time trying to make sure the water's clean make sure the drains drain uh trying to make sure they don't drain in the dean's office uh, you know things like that and i mean um, those are the kind of issues electrical you know Mm -hmm. one of the things that we do now we've got all these outlets on the wall and gosh they all got to work you know Used to, that wasn't the case. You know, if, if one out of four or five worked, I think you were okay. You know, it seems like it was. So we've got lots of issues with Ag Hall. Um, and so we start talking seriously about about this probably about four or five years ago. So Dr. Kuhn came to me as uh, one of my duties and basically said, you know, I want you to kind of head this up. And so I had had a recent conversation with a faculty member who is now my boss, actually, Scott Sensman. He was at the University of Tennessee. And I talked with Scott about uh, they were building a new building at Tennessee. And one of the things that Scott expressed to me was that uh, there was difficulty with the faculty in accepting this building, frankly, because administration had designed it and faculty were not really involved in the whole process. And so now they were being asked to occupy this building and kind of figure it out, you know, after the fact. And so faculty weren't real happy about it. Uh, The department heads weren't real happy. None of them were involved in the discussion. And so that's one of the things I told Dr. Kuhn. If I'm going to do this, one thing I really want to do is I want to make sure that this is a faculty-led process, that we make sure that the faculty are instrumental in what what we're going to do. Ultimately, you have to make decisions that are – uh, as a function of cost, you're going to be cutting corners. You're going to be trying to figure out what you can live without. 
And I really didn't want administrators to make those kind of decisions because I think if administrators make the decisions, then faculty offices get smaller, um, labs get smaller. Um, but anyway, that was something that he agreed to. Now, the result of that with the faculty-led initiative is offices got smaller <laughs> and labs got smaller as well. But uh, frankly, what we tried to do is make sure that we went to a university standard for all of our offices. Uh, these guys both have offices that are probably about 160 square feet, I think. I, I, yeah, I think there was there – was, we measured mine and that it <laughs> it was going to get – my my new one hypothetically if i'm allowed to move into the new building is it's going to get wider but it's, it's going to get shorter yeah so i think i There's think still an if for i think you. we've That's right. yeah it, there is an if yeah i think we've come to the conclusion that my office is not too far off it's just it it is uh, arranged differently yeah. than it will be right. yeah I think that's oh. the big thing is yeah. that is that and it's just a used to is you're used to these it, offices arranged in a certain way and you just can't see it clearly until you get there. That's exactly right. And and so one of the things we're trying to do with these with all these new offices is we're trying to make sure that the faculty have what we think. I mean, we we talked about should we go to a concept called hoteling, which means that you don't have a permanent mm-hmm. office. Um now, we may do that for, for some other entities. I mean, some of the grad students, that may be something we would do there. But I think from a faculty perspective, no, when you go to work for OSU, you're going to get, you're going to get a place to basically put your chair and your desk and, and your computer. So I don't think there's anything, you know, that we didn't embrace that. The laboratories is probably one of the big changes that I see from the way we do things right now. Now, for these guys, I don't know that it's that much different because I think they've always worked like this. But a lot of other places have had private labs basically for each one of the faculty members. So when you move into an area, you inherit what that previous faculty member you know might have had that, that retired uh, if you're fortunate. And some of those situations, though, where you're a faculty member that you move into maybe a new initiative, you don't have a space. You, I've, I've seen that here, you know, as well. And so what we really wanted as we looked at this building and we really tried to figure out how do we build a building not just for the next 10 years but for the next 50 years. You know, I can't predict. I'm not smart enough, and I don't think these guys are pretty smart, but I don't know that they're that smart. I don't know what they can predict would be the the newest cutting-edge research that's going to be needed to be done 50 years from now. So what I think we need to do is build flexible-type facilities, flexible labs that will allow them to function right now uh, with all their new toys and, and everything that allow them to have the flexibility to do what they need right now but also be able to be rearranged such that uh, instead of having having dedicated things in the middle of the floor that can't be moved, that we can we can move things around if we need to do things. We need to shift. If we have completely new pieces of equipment, uh, we have that flexibility with this new facility. So what we're doing are building three large labs, four actually, uh, the soils lab that I think uh, these guys are probably mostly involved in, maybe not, Josh. You're probably in the plant science area. Uh, Brian's mostly on the first floor. So soil is heavier than plants. So soil's going in on the first floor. That's kind of the, the logic that we had here. 
And so uh, it's one huge lab. It's about, I think it's probably almost 10,000 square feet. It's got a whole bunch of benches within it so that uh, there's a lot of shared space within the lab. Uh, we have uh, a receiving dock. We've got a place for plant pre- uh, soil preparation, soil grinding. That's all contained within this building. And then we've got built-in freezers, coolers, uh, all that equipment, instrumentations, all within this, this first floor space. Second floor, we start getting into the water uh, area, water and uh, ecology. So we'd see our in-room department probably being more involved in that in that area where they would have um, animal samples, you know, things like that that they would that they would be working on. And then the third floor, we get into the plant areas, and that's where I think Josh, your area of expertise would probably be. Uh, also, we have the genetics lab, and then there's one other lab that we put on the on the third floor that I think is one that uh, there's two initiatives I guess I wanted to try and provide in this building one was the genomics lab we think that's going to be a you know something that's very important to us now but it could be increasingly important in the future the other one is the digital ag area and so we've got a digital ag lab that uh, I expect to be very important as well and and that one's a little bit more difficult to predict what the future's going to going to need so pretty much what we're doing is providing some space that uh, again is configurable in, in many different ways. Uh, you can bring drones in there. You can work on them. We've got, uh, I think we've got three large monitors that are set up within this one space so that if you want to visualize your data uh, in a field, you know, if you got, uh, for example, some NIR bands that you're looking at, you know, I could see you, a, a person sitting and trying to analyze this data across all three different three different regimes and, and trying to make management decisions from this. We're just trying to anticipate, you know, what those people, you know, might need in the future, what those researchers might need. The building is uh, actually the southern wing of the building. is um, the, It's a concrete building, which is a little different than what you typically see uh, these days. Uh, most buildings are, are steel, but th- this one is uh, mostly concrete, and it was a, a cost uh, effort. Basically, we kind of thought that the price of steel was going to be highly volatile, and uh, what we didn't realize is that the cost of concrete is actually highly volatile as well. <laughs> Interesting. And so uh, we did have a significant increase in uh, in the price of the building as we originally bid it, and then as we went forward with it. But uh, we were we still think this was a, the best decision, you know, in terms of how to lay this building out. So the building is out of the ground now. It's uh, the the southern wing is uh, it's it's actually three wings. The southern wing is going to be the research labs. The northern wing is going to be more the classrooms and the and maybe faculty offices, administrative offices. And then the middle area is actually the most important part of the building because it's got the dairy bar. You know, that's that's <laughs> the part. Back the dairy bar. Yeah, we yep. got the dairy bar in the middle part. And so it's more of a steel connection between the other two wings, though. And so there's going to be, I think there's about 3,000 square feet of uh, what we call collaborative space in this building. And so that's something we really don't have in Ag Hall, which is uh, spaces just for students to hang out, you know, for faculty and students to interact. Uh, pretty much in Ag Hall, if you do it, you do it in your offices. But uh, in this new building, uh, we've got dedicated spaces, you know, for that. We've got lots of small huddle rooms, team rooms, uh, conference rooms, um, and then just a lot of just uh, – what they call the architects call sticky space, mm-hmm. which as students walk by, they're gonna they're gonna plop down and make themselves at home. 
So, the, and that's really what we want. We want them to. Sp- we want them to spend a lot of time in this new building. One thing about the New Frontiers building is, and especially since it's with the Ag, ag College, mm-hmm. you have influences from research. You have influences, obviously, from teaching, but then also yes. extension, you know, mirroring the land-grant mission. And it sounds like... All, all three will be flexible within this new. That's correct, and and, and right. that's that's not easy. I mean, like the so many of the other colleges on campus don't necessarily have that that three tiered mission, and that's something that the ag college has to has to uh, take care of in that. Well, that's one thing, and I actually had never really thought about it this way. But uh, you know, as you, if you think about extension, a lot of a lot of universities have research and teaching as their focus. Only the land grants have the extension portion, you know, added to it. And so that is the new building will have that in it. It actually, uh, uh, it's going to have a 4-H area on second floor. It's going to be very central. People are walking in the front door of the building. I think you're going to see that that green clover, and you're going to understand, you know, that extension is a very significant part of this building. Uh, there's a few things that we're looking at still. We're trying to figure out how to how to best manage this and uh one thing I'd really like to have is a uh, like a media wall. Mm-hmm. You know, I'd like to have something so that uh, people could watch this podcast, for example. Right? Mm-hmm. You watch these things, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. yes. So right. um, I do in my head. <laughs> or, or the talking, <laughs> the talking. Uh, yeah, the yeah. talking heads. Yeah. After you showed me that one, I'm not sure that people would want to walk, watch that. But, <laughs> but I do think that there's opportunities to visually engage people. You know, an awful lot. And that's one of the things we're trying to figure out as we go around this uh, building. We're trying to make sure there's lots of opportunities for uh, for you guys as researchers and extension professionals to tell your story. You know, that when you walk in the building, you know that this is agriculture, you know that, uh, or natural resources, and that, uh, you know, the building is a very comfortable place for everybody to be in. Where, where did you guys go to get ideas for the actual structure? I mean, because... You you had to go to other places and say, yeah. well, that's working for them. That may not work in Oklahoma, but what if we were to try that? Yeah, actually, there's two other entities right now that are well. There's there's actually several that have that have done buildings similar to this, but most have been most of the buildings in recent history have been purely research, uh, like the Bellman Building that we have across the road from from Ag Hall, which is really restricted access. It's built specifically for research doesn't include these other two entities you know there's no teaching uh, really involved in that building and so that's what you see a lot of universities have kind of done over the last several years I, Purdue has got uh, I think some new buildings um, what we attempted to do and of course you got to back up Ag Hall is just a little different anyway mm-hmm. you know having a bunch of different uh, disciplines all embedded in the same building is kind of a different experience. I mean, where I was educated, I'm I'm an ag engineer, and everywhere I've been has they've had their own building. Mm-hmm. This is the first place I've ever been that they're actually embedded within you know a, a department that's uh, adjacent to other departments. I think that's one thing that's unique about Ag Hall is the camaraderie. I think that mm-hmm. you see your departments have in the new building. Well, going back to your question. Um, so we looked at a lot of different places. Uh, probably the one that's that's the quickest, well, the most recent one, North Carolina State. 
just completed a new facility that's similar to ours. It's mostly research, but it also has some other initiatives attached with it. It's got some teaching attached with it, and maybe a little bit of extension uh, connected to it, too. Uh, that's probably the one that I would say that's been most influential in terms of us trying to maybe mimic some of the things that they've done. Tennessee is doing something fairly similar as well. Um, most of the other buildings that I'm familiar with right now are pretty specific. You know, they're not uh, they're not general like this one is. Now, one of the things that we're doing with this building is by grouping all of the research efforts in that southern wing you're really able to group all the HVAC systems together, you know, where you really want to tightly control the, uh, like the airflow uh, and the air exchanges. By having it in the same building, though, you have that adjacency. So the researchers that are, you know, we can have researchers that are very close to their laboratories, but at the same time, you know, they're still not too far from their department head offices or for the classrooms where they'd be teaching as well. We've got a lot of teaching labs in this building the as well. Labs are yeah, some of the things I'm excited about, and that'll be, I think, some of the things that we have there. We're going to offer these guys, I think, the opportunity to basically have the newest teaching abilities, you know, within this building. And instead of having to struggle with some of the technologies that we have now, I think we're going to see some really special opportunities there. Yeah, some of my my most excitement is you know the research labs will be nice due to continuity and because mm -hmm. I don't we're I'm moving across have stuff in the basement have stuff on fourth floor have stuff in Noble because we joint work with Warren Warren stuff is in Noble so we haul stuff across the road so having that but the teaching side is our biggest for yeah. me uh, but yeah. I have a three way split it's the biggest improvement is moving out of some of the classrooms I've been teaching right. in. When, and the technology's improved. I mean, our classrooms, mm -hmm. especially due to COVID, are better now. But to the point of what we're going to be, not just so the classrooms are better, but our labs are not better. Our teaching labs are the same teaching labs that, that Jeff Hattie and Billy Tucker That's taught right. in. And so the same black benches that have been fixed to the floor. Fixed to the yep. floor. Yep. Uh, limited space. And so. One of the biggest things that I guess I've seen here since I came to OSU is that and actually, I saw something this past week. I was asked to look at several of the teaching spaces and make sure that they, that people with limited mobility mm -hmm. would be able to navigate these spaces. You know, that's one thing about the new building. Restrooms would be, you know, completely accessible. The whole building's completely accessible. Uh, it doesn't matter where you want to go in this building, you know, if you're, if you're handicapped or not, you have that you have that capacity so that's something that we shouldn't have to ask those kind of questions but unfortunately now given the building that we have we have to mm -hmm. it's it, it's really thinking 20 30 years down are, 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 are folks still going to be able to access the building are they going to be able to use it will it still be a viable building to to help do the research and and educate the next generation too one other thing that we're doing too, and I, we, I need to bring it up, is that in terms of the uh, the academic departments, you know, we are going to be moving those. So instead of each one being a standalone unit off to itself, you know, in different parts of the building, we're really going to kind of centralize those and put them in the same vicinity. And so I think that's going to bring us great dividends too. One of the things that I've seen just since I've been here is that if you lose a key person in your department uh, staff, if you lose a financial expert, if you if you lose a person like that, it can be devastating to a department. 
you know, as these faculty, as they need their financial numbers, as they need where their grants are at, if they don't have access to that for a long period of time, that can be devastating to the entire department, the entire research program. Ha- putting people in closer proximity where maybe they'll still have that person, but there will be other people that will be closely aligned with them, and they should be able to be cross-trained. And, and I think that the management that's going to be accommodated in this building it's going to be a lot better than the way we certainly had the capability of doing things now. Josh, you look like you're deep in thought waiting for your pause or, or, or waiting for us to pause so you can project your question upon it on, on, on uh, Dr. Raper. I have a lot of questions. I know, but I don't know how close you'll be to the dairy bar yet. Okay, that's – Well, no, I, I will have to say that everybody – I've heard a lot of stories about the dairy bar, and I was in school, Brian was in school when that was still around. Their their stories and, and my stories yeah. don't mesh. I've never had a cinnamon roll and a thing of milk. Now, I have had a big old plate of biscuits and gravy, biscuits and which gravy are not going to be offered burritos. on the menu. Let me highlight that right now is that a dairy <laughs> bar in Oklahoma – will gravy. not have biscuits and gravy, and I think that is a tra- travesty. Biscuits and gravy and breakfast burritos were the that best is my things number, ever in the That is my dairy number bar. one thing I need you to work on for the rest of the year. <laughs> i tell you what, I, I, will, I will take that on. I, I will see what we can do. Because to be honest. I had no clue. You are blowing my mind. I did not. Well, I have well, made because, an you assumption. Know, the, the that person a that Oklahoma is breakfast place to me would have biscuits is, and gravy is much more important in this project than I am, and so I got to be her plus one at the uh, <laughs> groundbreaking ceremony, which I will have to say I've never seen a groundbreaking ceremony done in buckets in an auditorium before, but but it, it is what we did, and they were like, oh, here's the menu, and I'm like, what is this menu? Because it does not have biscuits and gravy on it. <laughs> So it's it's grilled cheese, you know. That's that is, one thing. That's, that's, that ain't it, man. That's yeah, I, not I, I, I know. <laughs> well, but I think that's for the main menu. Okay, I think that oh, maybe. Oh, do we have like a hidden menu? Well, I'm just saying that I think what they might have <laughs> available for breakfast of, might be yeah. different than what's available for lunch. Uh-huh. Okay, so. uh, but <laughs> at one point in time, this was this building was going to be focused on research and teaching or just teaching so right. what what drew you guys into this keeping that community approach and not just focusing on having really good research space or really good uh, lab space well early on as we looked at this building the architects really said you guys if you're looking to replace ag hall then you're going to need a bigger building you can than you can afford you know, frankly, that's that's kind of what came out of the first group of meetings we had with the architects. And so they said, what you really need to do is split it up into two projects. You really need to build the South Wing first. You need to build your research emphasis there, maybe build some teaching labs, but not build any of the administrative areas, not build the classrooms. And so early on, the initiative was really to try and try and do that. Now, that's one thing that uh, Dr. Kuhn will tell you that uh, when he made the acquaintance of Larry Ferguson, that that's one thing that Mr. Ferguson basically said, I will contribute to this, uh, but I want you to all do it at one time. Mm. And that was really a blessing for us because really the ability, instead of having to focus on doing one thing at a time and then them, it's kind of like trying to figure out how the the north wing of Ag Hall relates to the south wing mm-hmm. of Ag Hall. You know, or the middle part of it. You know, you can tell all three of them are built at different times. That's the difficulty, I think, with doing that. 
And so actually being able to design the whole thing, have it be seamless uh, from beginning to end, really allowed us to look at all three facets of, of a land-grant mission and how we're going to integrate those together in this one building. The old Ag Hall, yeah. after after the new shiny building is there and everybody, right. all the eyes are on that, what's going to happen to the old Ag Hall? Yeah, that's still actually, Dr. Kuhn and I have been discussing that because we still have, one of the accommodations we had to determine, we had to make was that we can't move everything over into this new building. So we made the decision that uh, there were a few things that we had to leave. And pretty much what we decided was anything that's not student-related. So therefore, that means like the Ag Finance Department, uh, HR, um, a few of those sort of entities would have to be left in the existing facility. Soil testing lab. Soil testing lab. I was... Actually, I'm glad you brought that up because one of the things that we are still working on, and this is, so right now, front and, first and foremost is the New Frontiers project. But related to that is I really need to come up with another place to house soil testing. And to be honest, what I'd like to do is create some sort of an environment for soil testing really out here at the agronomy station. Um uh, We've talked to Dr. Zong about that. Uh, that, uh, And actually, I took a trip a couple of weeks ago. I had to be at the APLU meeting. And uh, Colorado State has built a new facility in downtown Denver. I don't know if you guys have seen wow. that or not. But it's, it's a tremendous facility. And they've relocated their soil testing lab and their plant diagnostic lab into downtown Denver. And they did it for a number of reasons, but most of which is that they really want to get community support, you know, for those entities. And so they actually, so soil testing, it's kind of neat. They've got all the, the nice laboratories, but they've got glass walls on it. And so you can walk by and basically see the soil tests being done, plant diagnostics as well. they got little signs on the window that says, please don't tap on the glass to bother, the, you know, the scientists and those like sort of things. You're talking Jurassic Park. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm in my head, I'm saying the Jurassic Park, looking at the scientists playing with the eggs. Do not that's, feed the researchers, yep, I think. Yeah. Yep, yeah. <laughs> but so that's one thing that we are currently looking for is to try, and, and, and I think that probably would be one of the next projects that we really try and get together with architects on is try and find a place that we can move uh, soil testing to. Soil testing, piddle, and a conference center for extension meetings yes. would be exceptionally great. Well, idea. I'm, I'm, I'm I promised have an idea, but that the new Ag Hall can accommodate winter crop school in the coming years, so uh, I've, I've been promised that. It, it can be. We've got a 175-seat uh, tiered classroom. I saw the last tier actually get poured on that classroom this week. So, so we can't make it any bigger is what you're saying. <laughs> that's right. Well, well unless no, you go. No, I mean winter crop school. We can't make winter crop school because we're, we're, you're hitting our capacity You already. could go next door into the adjacent area, you know, which is 75, you know. So you uh-huh. could go to 250. And I think you could probably expand out to the dairy okay. bar area as well. Oh, okay. You know. I mean, we could have virtual, you know, from out there. We That's already do virtual. That's true. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, but I'm talking virtual from 20 feet away. Yeah. You know? <laughs> and in closer proximity yeah. to the dairy bar, you know, so Especially that would not be all if bad. they actually put biscuits and gravy on the menu. <laughs> let, let, let me ask one more question. You were talking about the possibility of moving different facilities. Yeah. There, yeah. There's, there's a lot of... 
I don't want to say there's a lot of real estate uh, associated, but it, uh, it it really does have to. You're you, not that this is going to happen, but you would take something out of research to build a building. So that's something that that you have to that you have to weigh whenever you do place different buildings or different facilities on land. Well, one of the things I I tell you that it's been. The architects early on basically made the suggestion that what we'll do is that the two wings of Ag Hall, we'll just tear them down, you know, and we'll leave the main building, you know, alone. Um, unfortunately, they've not existed in Ag Hall for very long because right. if they had existed, they would have understood that the way Ag Hall was built, the restrooms are in the wings. Mm-hmm. So if you tear the wings down, you know, it, we're going to have to have some major modification if we yeah. do that. Um, we also have a history. I mean, how long has it been since Kerr Drummond has been used? Right. You know, it's uh, – and it's going to be – I understand, actually, that may be coming in the future when we when we build a new uh, uh, food court right. venue. Yeah. Uh, but still, I, I really think that uh, the wings of Ag Hall may be there for a while. I don't think we have to worry about going anywhere just yet. So are we looking at maybe a, a centennial of Ag Hall uh, <laughs> T-shirt series? Yeah. You know, I, I'm just thinking, you know. What, what he's not saying is there's a few extension specialists or researchers that, that may not be allowed to move over because we're not nice people. Well, and so we get stuck in. Well, Brian, no, 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 no. I don't think I don't think we want to give you that out, Brian. I mean, I really think uh, we, we got to. I don't want to walk that far to my lab, so don't have to. Well, that's anything. right. We're going to have your lab over there. We'll turn the power yeah. off to your lab. Now, if we turn the power off to your office, it might not matter. My, my best, my best thing about New Ag Hall is I went through iterations on revamping uh, a fourth floor laboratory. And I agreed. Yes. We agreed to spend all the money, and like four months later, the announcement was, yeah. "There's a new act." <laughs> yeah. Not that I'm glad I didn't wait. I mean, that that lab has been phenomenal, but yeah. It, yeah, the students that have been educated in it, I'm sure, have greatly benefited from it. And so that's what we got to do is duplicate that effort in, in our new in our new building. Thank you for listening in on this conversation of the Red Dirt Agronomy Podcast. And if you'd like to join the next discussion, just send us an email, podcast at reddirtagronomy.com, or send us a tweet. Our handle is reddirtag. We would like to thank Dr. Randy Raper for joining us this week on the podcast and to find out more about him or any of the guests along with any of the resources that we've talked about today or, well, on any of the podcast episodes, visit reddirtagronomy.com. There you will find show notes and you can listen to past episodes too. For Dr. Josh Lofton, Dr. Jason Warren, and Dr. Brian Arnell, I am Dave Deacon. We all want to thank you for listening. The preceding is a copyrighted recording of Agnow Media, LLC, 2022. And yes, all rights are reserved.